Hello and welcome back to the Broly Talks Hockey Podcast. In today's episode, Matthew and I interview Brendan Batchelor. Brendan Batchelor works for Sportsnet 650 and he does the play-by-play for the Canucks games. And I hope you guys enjoy this episode as much as me and Matthew did. Talk Hockey Podcast. Today, Matthew and I are interviewing Sportsnet play-by-play host, Brendan Batchelor. So, I'm good. Thanks for having me, guys. How are you? Doing good. Doing good. So you're you're working for Sportsnet, so you're obviously pretty accomplished. How did you actually get into the play-by-play? Industry? Well, I uh, <laughs> it's hard to really say where it started. Like, I, I always enjoyed play-by-play as a kid. Like, I like to do play-by-play in my street hockey games. My table hockey games, playing the NHL video game, muting the TV, watching games. Uh, and, and so it's something I've loved for a long time. But after I graduated high school, I went to um, college here in the Vancouver area for broadcast journalism and then got my start in sports radio after that and eventually got to a point where I uh, – had an opportunity to do play-by-play at that point for the Surrey Eagles in the British Columbia Hockey League, which is a junior A league uh, that is a feeder league for a lot of American college hockey. Um, So that, you know, there's lots of guys that have come out of the BCHL and gone on to play in the NCAA. Uh, So I did a year of play-by-play in that league, and that turned into an opportunity for the Vancouver Giants of the Western Hockey League, which is uh, part of the Canadian Hockey League, the highest level of major junior in Canada. Uh, And so I got to do the play-by-play there for four years. And then uh, at the end of that four years, the opportunity to make the jump to the NHL and call Canuck games came about. And so I jumped at that opportunity and, and here I am. Awesome. So with the Giants, you had four years with the Giants Hockey Club. How can you kind of take us through how that went? Because you went from play-by-play broadcaster and then you were director of media relationship media relations sorry so how did that really come about so when i was initially hired to do the play-by-play i was just being paid on a per game basis and was just you know showing up calling the games going home it wasn't a full-time job kind of thing uh but after the first season uh they had an opening in their front office so they offered me the role of director of media relations which was a a full-time salary job on top of the fact that i would be calling the play-by-play. So I, you know, I did the broadcast, I did the play-by-play, but I also helped run the team website and social media and sent out press releases and coordinated player interviews and, and a variety of different things uh, that ranged from things that you would normally think someone in media relations would deal with uh, to things that you wouldn't like painting the dressing room over the summer and things like that. And when you work for a junior hockey team, you really have a, a sense that it's, it's a small group of people that have to do a lot of work to make things go. So you do anything that you can to uh, help, help the team succeed. And uh, whether that was painting the dressing room or doing the play-by-play, that was, uh, that was part of my role there. So uh, it was the, the first season I just did the games. And then for the three following seasons, I did the games. And I was also the media relations director. All right. You, you just, you, just to get you just to get you straight here, you said you were painting the dressing yeah, room. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, you know, there there was another summer where the team changed home arenas. So traditionally, the Giants had always played at the Pacific Coliseum, which is the arena where the Vancouver Canucks 
used to play. Uh, and they relocated a few seasons ago to a, a more modern facility, the Langley Event Center, which was a smaller arena, uh, but but much newer. And so, you know, when there's only five or six employees for the hockey team, you've got to chip in and help out do everything. So for that summer, I was a mover and we were packing boxes of all of the stuff that the team had and getting it shipped out to the new arena and then unpacking it and setting up everything in new offices and, and things like that. So, you know, it may sound surprising to, to people listening, but for anybody that's worked in junior hockey, you can understand that, you know, these are, organizations that don't make the big bucks that the NHL does. And so they have a, a small staff that all has to work together to make sure that everything gets done properly. And after, if that means packing boxes or painting the dressing room, then that's what it means. Um, going back a little bit before your time with the, uh, with the giants, um, you were the play-by-play broadcaster for the Vancouver Whitecaps of the MLS. Um, your, your resume has been, predominantly hockey based. How did you get that? Uh, like run us through how that opportunity came about to be an MLS broadcaster. Yeah. So I, I was never a full time broadcaster in major league soccer. Um, what happened was, so I, I worked at what was then called team 1040 radio in Vancouver. And I worked there during broadcast school and then after broadcast school. And I was a reporter and I would do the on-air sports updates and I would do production work and basically sort of wore as many hats as I could. And, and it was an opportunity for me to get my foot in the door at a sports radio station in a major market in Canada, in Vancouver. Um, And so I was working for them while also trying to get my start in play-by-play and you know once I became established as the play-by-play broadcaster for the Giants um, you know they they knew at the station that I I have a love of soccer as well I follow it I'm passionate about it and um, so they needed uh, well first of all Vancouver Whitecaps had a farm team I guess you could call it the the equivalent of uh, an AHL team to the NHL that was called Whitecaps FC2 and they played in a lower league And their games were just broadcast on the internet, um, like video stream on the internet. And so I, you know, applied and had the opportunity to call games for that team. So I I did play-by-play for the USL farm team for the Whitecaps and then uh, got a chance to do a handful of MLS games when there were conflicts with the other broadcasters that they they couldn't make the game because what happened was Peter Shad was the play-by-play voice of the Vancouver Whitecaps on radio, but then he got the opportunity to call some games on TV. So they needed people to fill in for him on the radio while he was doing the games on TV. So I got a chance to call three games at major league soccer. And, uh, you know, that was really my first experience with, you know, traveling and following a major sports club, uh, in that, you know, I, I got to go to San Jose and to Los Angeles and to Kansas city, uh, to call road games, for the Vancouver Whitecaps. So that was certainly exciting. And at that point, it was, you know, the high point of my career that uh, I was the full-time play-by-play broadcaster for the Vancouver Giants at that point. But as I said, they were a junior hockey team. And, um, you know, I had the opportunity to to call a little bit of soccer. And it's something that I really enjoyed and something that if it ever presented the opportunity again, I would jump at because it's, it's a very different style of broadcast. But uh, I find it a lot of fun as well. Um, you were the broadcaster for from April of 2016 to July of 2017 for the 16-17 season. Um, 
one of the, uh, or sorry, former prospect for the Vancouver Whitecaps and recently as of, when, uh, I want to say yesterday, which, which would have been December 3rd, Alfonso Davies, did you ever, um, did you have the chance to, uh, to call his games uh, when he was, the, when uh, he played or was he, uh, did you, or did you just miss him? No, so he actually broke in with their second team, which was Whitecaps FC2, which is the team I was doing play-by-play for that whole season as a 15-year-old. Uh, so I got a chance to see him very early on in his professional soccer career and, you know, watch him grow and develop. And at that point, he was really impressive just at 15 years old. And it's kind of amazing to think about what he's gone on to do now, uh, you know, winning the Champions League with Bayern Munich. He's widely considered one of the best, if not the best left backs in the entire world now. And, um, you know, I saw him as a 15 year old at uh, UBC's Thunderbird Stadium here in Vancouver. So um, that's something that's pretty cool to look back on. And you know what? That That's a really awesome part of broadcasting sports at lower levels, like in the Western Hockey League or in the BC Hockey League, like I did, or in the USL for Whitecaps FC2, is you see these young players grow and become superstars. And whether it was Alfonso Davies with that team, or, you know, there are countless guys. I can remember watching Braden Point in the Western Hockey League and calling his games when the Vancouver Giants played the Moose Jaw Warriors. And now, look, he's just finished hoisting a Stanley Cup with the Tampa Bay Lightning. So that's something that's that's pretty fulfilling and, and pretty cool to be able to follow these guys' journeys on the field of play, whether it's soccer or hockey or whatever sport it might be, just as my own career broadcasting was progressing as well. Um, and we're gonna I'm gonna get a little bit off topic here because we are a hockey podcast, but we're also Canadian. Mm-hmm. So Alfonso Davies being named Canadian uh, Canadian best men's soccer player of the year, and obviously win the Champions League, and uh, at this time being valued at 88 million dollars as of September 16th. As for like this is from going off of uh, transfermarket.us, mm-hmm. do you think his story and what he's done will? help to increase the amount like to increase Canada's stance on the or not stance like their position in the soccer world yeah I certainly think it it could and you know he's just by the fact that he plays for the national team he's going to help uh that club hopefully have some more success and potentially qualify for a world cup here at some point um but I think the biggest impact a guy like that could have is on young players looking at you know a guy that that grew up in Edmonton, that was born in a refugee camp, first of all, grew up in Edmonton, uh, came up through the system of an MLS team and is now playing on one of the top clubs in the world, has won the Champions League and, you know, is, is widely recognized as one of the best players at his position in the entire world. If that doesn't, you know, inspire young Canadian soccer players and motivate them to, to try and accomplish their dreams, I don't know what will, because, you know, this this guy is, is one of the best soccer players that you'll see anywhere right now. And, you know, you can turn on your, your TV every weekend, uh, of course, when he's not injured and, uh, and see him play in one of the best leagues in the world for one of the best clubs in the world, or you can watch him play in the champions league during the midweek. Um, if that doesn't inspire young Canadian soccer players, I don't know what will. So I think, you know, his personal success will have an impact on the potential success of the Canadian national team, not just in the short term, but in the long term as well, because you hope that uh, the success he's had helps grow the game here north of the border. 
All right, let's get a little bit back on track. Your partner, uh, your partner in crime when doing the Canucks broadcast, NHL journeyman uh, Corey Hirsch. Um, he's about, he's been around in uh, when what was it twenty year twenty years plus playing with. Uh, he played, yeah, twenty or uh, fifteen years playing professional hockey. Uh, how? What's it like? What's it like uh, going to work? Going to work every day with a guy uh, who's uh, had a, who's been through as many uh, experiences and has as many stories as he does. Yeah, it's great, and you know he brings a really unique perspective to the broadcast that that I don't have because he played professional hockey. He played in the NHL. He played in the Stanley cup playoffs, but he also, you know, played in Europe, played for team Canada, at the Olympics played in the minor leagues. So he's got a, a, a perspective and, and can provide some context for basically any player on the ice. Now he was a goaltender, so it's not going to necessarily transfer completely when you look at, um, you know, forwards and defensemen and things like that, but he's played, in so many different places at so many different levels. Uh, you know, he was very successful in junior with the Kamloops Blazers as well. So he understands what it's like to be playing well and to be riding high as an NHL starting goaltender. He understands what it's like to be cut from the team. He understands what it's like to have success. He understands what it's like to, to struggle. Um, and, and so depending on any individual situation with a player, he has a, a unique perspective that I don't have because he's been in those same shoes and he's dealt with those same issues. And so, you know, I, I learn something all the time from talking to Corey about hockey and from, you know, sharing the, the airwaves with him as well, just because there are all sorts of things that, you know, he'll say something and I'll go, oh, you know what? I never would have thought of it that way. But that makes complete sense. And that comes from his experience as a, a former player. All right. And a lot of people that I've talked to that are in broadcasting or journalism have said that it's been a struggle. A lot of the job, these kind of jobs go to hockey players. So did you ever find that as a struggle, not playing professional hockey for me personally i didn't mainly because you know play by play generally speaking is not a job that is held by former players across the league so most broadcasts have a play-by-play guy and a color analyst and the color analyst more often than not will be a former player because you know they're there to give insight and perspective and you know tell stories and talk about their experiences and how they might apply to what you're seeing on the ice um, but that was never what I aspired to be. So, you know, while I work with a guy like Corey, I always wanted to be the play-by-play guy. And generally speaking, um, you know, if you look across the league, it's not a prerequisite to be a great play-by-play broadcaster that you have been a former player, whether it's Bob Cole or Jim Hewson or, you know, Doc Emmerich south of the border or whoever it might be. Some of the most successful play-by-play guys um, have never played the game at a high level. So it's not something that I ever, ever struggled with. Um, you know, I, I've been very lucky to get the opportunities that I've been given, but I think specifically in play by play, it's, it's not an issue that former players are, are stepping into that role. That makes a lot of sense. So let's segue into our next topic here where there's been a lot of rumor and it's probably going to happen that, the NHL is going to do an all Canadian division. So where do you think the Canucks fit in the range? Yeah, it's so hard because this is going to be, 
an incredibly competitive division. And in my mind, there are five teams that could win this division, and I wouldn't be surprised. The only two teams that I see not in that conversation right now are the Winnipeg Jets and the Ottawa Senators. Um, but, you know, you look at the Calgary Flames. Obviously, they signed Jacob Markstrom. They're going to be vastly improved because they'll have consistency in the crease. Uh, the Edmonton Oilers will want to bounce back after their playoff disappointment last year, and they added a guy like Tyson Berry to help bolster their back end. Uh, the Maple Leafs, you know, very well on paper are the best team in Canada in my mind, but they haven't been able to achieve those heights uh, for a variety of reasons over the past few seasons, but they, they will be a good team as well. Uh, the Montreal Canadiens, uh, you know, are a team that I think has some depth up front that is unlike any other team in Canada, and they might have the best goaltending pairing in the country too now that they've got Carey Price and Jake Allen backing him up. And then, you know, there's the Canucks. They're this young upstart team. They've got Quinn Hughes and Elias Pettersson, and, you know, they could be ready to, to take a step in the right direction. Um, so it's so hard to handicap. Uh, I tend to think that the Canucks will probably be right in the middle of that mix. So if we assume that four of the seven teams make the playoffs, I would expect the Canucks to be between three and five. So they will be one of those teams that has to battle it out for a playoff spot right to the end of the season, just because uh, I look at Calgary as a team that's underachieved, but now has consistent goaltending. And then I look at Toronto and what they should be able to do. And those are the teams to me that, that kind of rise to the top at the top of that division. But then Vancouver, Montreal and Edmonton, those three teams are who I expect to have to battle it out for those final two playoff spots, assuming that's what the format would look like. Um, and so because of that, it, it's really going to come down to how the Canucks are able to do in their head-to-head matchups against those teams, uh, which is, you know, one interesting part of this potential schedule that will be fascinating is if these teams have to play all of their games within the division because they can't travel across the border due to COVID-19, that every night you're playing a game, it's a four-point game within the division. And you potentially play, you know, what, eight or nine games against a team that you're directly competing for for a playoff spot. So, you know, if we get late into the season and, you know, there's only a few points separating some of these teams, those games are going to be incredibly exciting and incredibly important. I just want to go back a little bit about the Canucks. So they lost Markstrom. And how do you think that tandem? Yeah, it's it's hard to predict. You know, Braden Holtby has had a lot of success in his career as a former Stanley Cup champion, but at the same time, he's coming off one of his worst years uh, in quite a long time. Now, the Washington Capitals were not a good defensive team. The Canucks are not necessarily a great defensive team either, but, you know, some of the underlying numbers show that it'll be an improvement for him coming to Vancouver in terms of uh, the quality of, of defense in front of him. And then the Canucks, I know for a fact, believe that goaltending coach Ian Clark uh, can get to work with Braden Holtby and, and try and revive his game. And then you also have Thatcher Demko coming off that amazing performance at the end of the Vegas series where he almost single-handedly willed the Canucks into the conference final with the way he played. Um, so, you know, I like the way their, their goaltending tandem is set up. I think it's set up well for this season because, you know, whenever the regular season gets underway, we expect it to be quite a compressed schedule. So you might be playing three or four games a week, uh, and you're going to need both of your goaltenders 
to play games and to have success. And, you know, other than the fact that the Montreal Canadiens have Carey Price and Jake Allen, I would argue that if you look at the entire goaltending tandem, so not just the starter, but the potential backup as well, the Canucks have the second best goaltending tandem in the potential Canadian division. And that could serve them well. Now, there's lots of things that could change that. Braden Holtby could struggle rather than, re, you know, find his game again. Thatcher Demko could take a, take a step back as a young goaltender after having that great showing in the playoffs. So, you know, with goaltenders, it's so hard to predict. And, and goodness knows, uh, looking at Jacob Markstrom and how much of a late bloomer he ended up being, uh, it's going to be really hard to predict what things look like in the crease for Vancouver. But in my mind, the likelihood of one of those two guys finding their game and providing the Canucks consistent goaltending that allows them to have a chance to win games is pretty likely. So, you know, maybe it's not as as great a situation as it would have been had you been able to re-sign Markstrom. But I think Braden Holtby was a, a pretty astute acquisition by Jim Benning to, to bring in and, and try and solidify things in the crease anyway. So if the Canucks, let's say the Canucks, uh, sorry, Hopi fails or Demko fails, do you think you think one of them can carry the weight of the tandem? Well, I, I, I tend to Canucks? think so. Like you look at Braden Holtby, he's been a, a starting goaltender in the league and a very good one in the past. Um, you know, Thatcher Demko certainly doesn't have that body of work, but the Canucks are hoping that he can turn into a legitimate number one goaltender because he's really the, the guy they're banking on to be their goaltender for many years to come, even if he's not the bona fide number one starter as we sit here right now. Um, so, yes, you know, I think both of those guys are capable of being a number one guy and helping this team win games. But the question remains uh, what are things going to look like with the schedule? And as much as you might have a guy that is playing very well and is playing very consistently, you're not going to play him. If you have three games in four nights, you're not going to play him in all three of those games. It's just not realistic. So uh, as much as one guy could, you know, prove to be the, the head and shoulders starting goaltender, the other guy is still going to have to be able to give them uh, solid efforts in order for them to succeed and to be a playoff team in a Canadian division that I uh, expect, as I said, will be very hotly contested. Yeah. And another question that I think kind of rolls around people's minds with the Canucks is their forward core. Cause you lose, you lost a guy like Toffoli. I'm not saying they have a bad forward court, but there's a lot of uncertainty with that top six. Cause you could end up with, cause let's say you want to play Pearson with Horvat and Besser. So then you have a situation where you have Vertanen on the first line. So do you think Benning will go out and try and get a first liner? Or do you think he'll try and stick with, Vertanen I think they're going to try and sort things out in the top six in house, at least to start uh, in large part, because they have cap issues and they don't really have a ton of money to be able to afford to bring in uh, another top six forward at this point. Now, you know, maybe that's something they could explore closer to the trade deadline if they find themselves in a playoff position. But the other thing that, that I think you have to remember too, is this is a Canucks team that was right around the playoff bubble last year. And they are essentially returning the same forward group that they had most of last season with the exception of Josh Levo, who was signed by the Flames. Uh, but Levo also was injured for a large portion 
of last season. They didn't get Tyler Toffoli till just before the deadline. He only played 10 games in the regular season for them. He then, you know, was injured in the playoffs. So he didn't actually play for them very much. And yet they were still able to have the success that they had. Now that said to me, the way the, the top six will look is it'll likely be Miller with Pedersen and Besser and then Pearson with Horvat and the right wing spot on that line is going to be up for grabs. And, you know, Jim Benning this week on the radio here in Vancouver mentioned that, you know, they expect Jake Vertanen to come back and, and have an improved season. And it's going to be a big opportunity for him to grab a spot in the top six if he can provide some consistency. But on the other end of the spectrum, Benning, you know, made no bones about the fact that, you know, it's getting to a point where if Vertanen can't perform, he's going to get passed by other guys within their organization. Uh, they've got a young Swedish prospect, a second round pick from a couple of years ago, Niels Hoglander, who many people will remember scored a, a beautiful lacrosse style goal in the World Juniors last year that's going to be coming to training camp trying to make the team. And if he's a guy that can fit into their top six right away and have success, then suddenly there goes that opportunity for Vertanen. You also have to look at the fact that Vasily Podkolzin, their first round pick from 2019, is in the last year of his deal in the KHL right now. And so as soon as his season ends in Russia, he would be able to sign and come and join the Canucks and could potentially join them in the second half or later in the season, depending on when things get going and what the schedule looks like. So there are more young, talented forwards within the organization coming that are going to have an opportunity to try and make this club. So, you know, coming into this season and coming into training camp, it really does feel like a, a last opportunity for Jake Vertanen to really put his stamp on a top six role with this organization, or it's entirely possible that some of the other young players will uh, will pass him by. But in terms of acquisitions, I don't see the Canucks doing anything. Um, you know, there's a possibility that Michael Furland gets healthy at some point. He's a guy that maybe could fit into a top six role. Um, but, you know, unless we get to the trade deadline and they find some wiggle room to get a deal done, it seems like they're going to try and, and, you know, cobble together a lineup with what they've got right now. And that means opportunity for the likes of, of Vertanen or Furland if he's able to play. Or maybe we see Louis Erickson playing in that role again, as, as he did so much of last season, even though he doesn't bring a lot of offense. Yeah, I was just about, uh, I was just about to get into it. Uh, what do you think? Do you think there will be a possibility of um, if if they can't uh, bring somebody in from outside or say like they try like they try things not working? If somebody like if they try once again to revive Louis Erickson's career and stick him up on like on the top six, whether it be with, with a guy like Pedersen or Bohorvat or uh, whoever. Yeah, I, I don't think it's at a point now where anybody is looking at it as reviving Erickson's career. At this point, Louis Erickson is what he is. He's not an offensive producer anymore. But what he still is able to bring for the team is consistent defensive play, and he's a strong penalty killer as well. So, you know, if you're Travis Green and you're looking at your lineup and you don't have a lot of great options for that top six right wing spot with Horvat and Pearson, which is really where the job opening is right now. Louis Erickson is a safe player to put there. And that's really what we saw Travis Green do for large stretches of last season where Erickson would play there. And, you know, he's probably not going to produce offense. He's probably not going to help drive play but he's going to make the right play in the defensive zone. So you don't get hemmed in. He's going to, you know, 
be reliable to be in the right spot in his own end so that your team doesn't give up goals, as opposed to a guy like Jake Vertanen, who certainly has more offensive upside. We saw that with the 18 goals last year, but has really struggled with consistency and really struggles in his own zone, especially on the boards, Um, you know, battling for pucks and making the right play to help the team exit the zone. So it was kind of a situation later in the season before the Canucks acquired Toffoli last year where uh, if they needed a goal, Jake Vertanen would be on that line. And if they were protecting a lead, Louis Erickson would be on that line. And it sort of pinballed back and forth. So, you know, as we sit right now, that's what I would expect to see on that line going into the season, unless someone like Niels Hoglander is able to come in and prove that he can be someone that fits into your top six offensively. It can help out in that role, or maybe he proves to be a fit uh, on the Pedersen line, and then you can play Besser with Horvat as you have in the past as well. And with Horvat, there was, or not, sorry, with Besser, there was like some trade rumors going around. Yeah, I, I, I don't really think the Canucks were ever seriously considering moving Brock Besser. I, I think it was one of those situations where if you're a general manager and you get a call about a player, you're going to listen to what the other GM has to say. And certainly, uh, you know, prior to the signing of Nate Schmidt, you could look at the Canucks and say, okay, they really need another top four right shot defenseman. Now, Nate Schmidt is not a right shot. He shoots left, but he plays the right side and has been very successful in that role throughout his NHL career. So by signing Nate Schmidt, even though they lost Chris Tanev, they've kind of helped solidify their blue line. Certainly their third defensive pairing will look a little bit different this year because Troy Stetcher has gone to Detroit. They expect that Ole Uolevi, the former first-round pick, uh, is going to come in and make the team after having battled with injuries. Um, But to me, any conversation about trading Besser was tied to getting a defenseman back that could help you solidify things with your blue line, because certainly the Canucks have not been a very strong defensive team over the last few years. So to me, trading Besser only made sense in a scenario where you were getting, I don't know, like a Matt Dumba back in return or something like that, that would really help your blue line. Um, So I, I don't see anything imminent for Brock Besser in terms of a trade, but what will be interesting longer term it will be the Canucks cap situation after they get Pedersen and Hughes signed because both of those players uh, have their entry-level deals expire after this coming season, and the Canucks are going to have to get them locked up. And depending upon whether they sign them to bridge deals or long-term deals, you know, if you get them both on long-term deals, you could be looking at 18 to 20 million of your cap going to those two players. And suddenly you may have to shed salary elsewhere. So at that point, does Besser become expendable? Maybe he does. But right now, I don't see any situation where it would make sense for the Canucks to trade Brock Besser uh, because he's so important to their top six. And, you know, you look at the right side right now, we're already talking about the fact that they're one winger short of having two right wing top six wingers. Uh, So it wouldn't make sense to trade Brock Besser away because then you're looking at your right side and going, oh, we don't have anyone that can play up the lineup. Yeah, and with those trade rumors, those were before Toffoli left or went signed with the Canucks. But with the defense core, you got kind of an open spot. You could like, do you think that guys like Jack Rathbone, Brogan Rafferty's name? Well, was it seems like, like it's going to be Ole Olevi. Everything we're hearing from the organization is that you know they expect him 
to come in and make the team. And he was a guy that, uh, that looked really good in their summer camp before the playoffs. Um, you know, he was a former fifth overall pick, although, uh, certainly his career hasn't gotten out to the start. He would have liked at the pro ranks with some of the injuries he's faced. Um, but you know, they liked what they saw from him. He was with the Canucks in the bubble during the playoffs. And, you know, they've openly talked about the fact that they see him as being a guy that can come in and make the team and help them this year. But there's also another spot left on that back end because Oscar Fantenberg left um, to go to the KHL. So right now, you look at the top six and you can say, okay, it'll be Hughes and Schmidt and Edler and Myers and Jordy Ben and Ole Levy. but who's going to be that seventh defenseman? And so that's where some of these other names, you know, you bring up Jack Rathbone, Brogan Rafferty. I know within the organization, Jalen Chatfield is a guy that they see great things from and they believe he could be ready to make the jump to the NHL and be that that seventh defenseman at least to start. And then, you know, with the, with the number of times uh, that Jordy Ben was a healthy scratch last year. And maybe if you're Levy, um, you know, struggles to find consistency early on, those could be the five, six, seven spots could really be rotated where it's a different guy sitting out of the lineup every night, depending on matchups and on what you want to see and on how guys are playing at that point in the season. But, uh, you know, if I was a young defenseman in the Canuck organization right now, I'd be licking my chops because there are two jobs available on that blue line coming into the season. Now, one of them is, yes, the seventh defenseman, which in theory wouldn't play every night. But the other thing we know about the Canucks is they've pretty consistently had injuries on their blue lines, on their blue line almost every year for what feels like eternity. So if you're the seventh defenseman, you could find yourself in the lineup very quickly if someone further up uh, the depth chart sustains an injury. So, you know, Jalen Chatfield, Brogan Rafferty, Guillaume Brisebois, Ashton Sautner, Jack Rathbone. These are all guys that should be coming to training camp incredibly motivated because they could all potentially find themselves on the NHL roster when the season starts. And another Canucks prospect that I, I love talking about is Jet Wu. He's 20 years old currently, but yeah, it's hard to tell. Like I, I don't really have great insight on that because I haven't seen him play a lot. Right. I follow the NHL team and uh, you know, he's been in the Western hockey league for the last four plus years. And, you know, I, I would have only seen him in person play a couple of times. So, you know, you like the size, you like the potential physicality, you like the mean streak, that he has. Um, but I would tend to think with, you know, that long list of other defensemen within the organization that for Jet Wu right now, you're just looking at getting him into the pro game, getting him settled and allowing him to grow and develop a little bit, whether that ends up being in Utica this season uh, or whether as an overager, he goes back to the Western Hockey League. Who knows? Because we don't even know whether the WHL is going to be able to play at this point. We don't know what the AHL situation is going to look like with the Utica Comets, whether they're going to be playing in Utica or whether they'll end up north of the border. Because certainly uh, if you have your farm team in Utica, if you're the Canucks and you have to recall someone to join your team, you know, there's a a border and a two week quarantine that are in the way there. So there's all these questions around, you know, not just a guy like Jet Wu, but around, a lot of the, the Canucks prospects, whether they play in the CHL or overseas or in the American Hockey League or wherever it might be. But, um, 
you know, I, I would look at Jet Wu as still being a couple years away based on what I know. Again, I'm not the best guy to talk to about this because I'm not someone that spends a lot of time analyzing prospects or or watches these guys play a lot. Um, but from everything I've heard, it doesn't seem like Jet Wu is a guy that is NHL ready right now. But if you get him into the American Hockey League, you get him to grow his game at the pro level over a couple of seasons, then maybe at that point he could jump to the NHL. Yeah, and um, Jet Wu's dad is Larry Wu, and he actually grew up in my uh, hometown. I've seen the and first one, in a couple sure, movies. but Have it was the quite movies? a while ago. Yeah, do you know the the kid who's taking the medical yes. yeah. uh, courses? Oh, cool. During playing? Yeah. Yeah, that's there Jet Wu's dad. So I thought that was a cool little story. The one that was uh, Larry, Larry Wu. Hold on, the guy that was... Jet Wu's dad. He grew up in my hometown. Sorry. Wow, I'm shocked. That just blew my mind. <laughs> <laughs> and yeah, uh, you saw. You said you only saw Goon one. You didn't see the second one. I don't believe I have, but I honestly can't remember. You know, working in junior hockey and working in the NHL right now, um, you know, you spend a lot of time on buses and planes. So I, I've seen a lot of movies. Um, but you know, it's not jumping back to my brain right now, whether I've seen both of them. I would recommend, uh, the site. I would recommend the second one. It was really, it was really good. Perfect. I'll add it to the list. (laughs) And, um, so earlier on, you mentioned how the Canucks are in, uh, they're in a cap crunch right now. And especially, especially next year with Quinn Hughes and, um, Patterson with uh, having having their contracts expire at the end of at the end of this year, if I'm not mistaken. Like yes. Yeah, at the end of the coming season. With the upcoming expansion draft with the Kraken, do you see Braden Holpe as somebody who is in a, who is in essence a one a one year contract, a one year uh, like he, he he signed for two years? Do you in essence see him as a one year play play for us, then go play for Seattle? It's possible. Uh, I I do tend to think that he will be the goaltender that they expose. They're not going to expose Thatcher Demko and Jacob Markstrom's gone now. So that issue, um, you know, maybe isn't as pressing as it was, but at the same time, uh, and, and, you know, I haven't really done my homework on this. I don't know what the quality of goaltenders that are going to be available in the expansion draft will be. So, you know, as much as they might expose Braden Holtby, um, you know, there might be higher quality goaltenders around the league, that that could be drafted by Seattle. So I would imagine the Canucks would hope that they have Braden Holtby for two years, because certainly that, you know, provides a little bit of a safety net for Thatcher Demko to really get his feet under him as a a legitimate and consistent starting goaltender in the NHL. But, uh, you know, I don't know enough about, you know, who's going to be unprotected. And really there's so many things that can change between now and the expansion draft in terms of trades and, and roster moves. Um, that, you know, I do expect that they'll expose Braden Holtby, but I have no idea whether he'll be the, the best fit for uh, for Seattle to take from the Canucks roster. Watch, now that this will be the most NHL thing ever. Watch uh, Marc-Andre Fleury get exposed, picked up, and bring, and carry Seattle to, uh, carry another expansion team to a cup final. Yeah, that would, that would be crazy, wouldn't it? And that would make for a great story. And, you know, uh, that goaltending situation in Vegas is something else too, after the whole, uh, you know, with Marc-Andre Fleury's agent and the sword in the back and the, on Twitter, uh, during the playoffs, right before the Canucks series, actually, 
Um, and then Robin Leonard still being there. So, um, you know, I, I wonder if the Golden Knights, uh, certainly you would expect them to potentially expose Marc-Andre Fleury, but I wonder if they don't look for a trade, if they can find one before then, uh, just so that they don't have that awkward situation with those guys in the crease. Or maybe, or maybe also wonder, like, I, I also wonder if maybe they keep around Fleury because, uh, I don't, I don't know if you, if you've been, uh, if you've been paying attention to the social media, social media in the past week, uh, it looks like Robin Leonard's looking to, and and Ryder is looking to have a scrap with uh, Paul Brothers. Yeah, yeah, I, I've I've seen that. I, I t- and I and of course Evander Kane's been quite loud about that as well. Although I tend to think that most NHL contracts would have a provision in them that prevents players from getting into fights or boxing matches. So as much as there's a lot of talk right now. Uh, you know, knowing that a lot of these guys aren't allowed to ski or or do other things that could result in injury, I can't imagine the Vegas Golden Knights uh, would sign off on any of their players having a boxing match. One last thing, and then we're going to let you go. Out of Kane, Reeves, and Leonard, who do you think would be the most? Uh, who do you think would put up the best fight against uh, Jake Paul? Yeah, it's 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 hard to know without knowing the backgrounds of of all of them completely like on the face of it you would say ryan reeves because you know he's one of the toughest guys in the nhl uh we've seen what he's been able to do but you know i know for a fact that evander kane is a trained boxer and part of his off-season regimen is to train boxing and you look at him he's named evander after evander holyfield so you know and his dad was a boxer i believe as well so um you know as much as you look at ryan reeves who's probably the toughest guy in the nhl right now in terms of a technical boxing match i wonder if evander kane would be the the best fit to to succeed in that sort of scenario honestly yeah you you do make a good point i do agree anyways uh Brody, do you have anything else you want to you want to get into? We'd like to thank Brendan for coming on the show today. It was a pleasure talking to him. We hope you guys enjoyed. We'll see you all next week on another edition of the Brody Talks Hockey Podcast on the Sports Fluent Podcasting Network. Have a great week.